On today's episode, Ashley shares the chilling story of Mary Bell, a little girl who committed her first murder the day before her 11th birthday. Welcome to Crime Bar. we begin good afternoon ashley hello Slash good evening i don't know what time of day it is good right day now to you yeah hi how are hi. you i'm good i feel like i never woke up this morning i got too much sleep wow it's like it's frustrating because i feel like my body i can't sleep too much i can't too, sleep too little i don't know what to give it i'm always tired do you drink enough caffeine one and a half cups it's good yeah. enough maybe that's not enough maybe my eyes um, feel sleepy well, you look awake. Thank you. you look Under alive. eye concealer. Yeah, I know. A lot of it. Um, So the story I have today is kind of heavy. Okay. I warned you last week that it's yes. um, about kids. So it's like. Give the people a trigger warning. a major trigger warning because it involves crimes against kids, crimes involving kids. Kids, no, kids, kids. Kids. Kids are in this story. Okay. And kids killing kids. Okay. So there's... Kids. <laughs> there's a lot of kids. Yeah. Um, which I don't normally like to do. I avoid them at all costs. I know, but, but it just happens. I know, it just ends up happening. Um, I feel like I did another one with kids, didn't I? High schoolers. You had high oh, schoolers. No. Um, they don't count as kids. I've done a couple with kids. Oh, you did one with, with kids. Marie Moore. With Marie Moore. And the... Um, concentration camp yes yeah that was hard anyways i'm doing the story of mary bell okay i have not heard of that really yeah really unless I, you start telling me that i'm like oh i'm just bad oh, with names i feel like we every time we do a story mm -hmm. for being true crime enthusiasts yeah uh i don't think i've ever known any of your stories yeah and have you known any of mine i think i've known Two, oh. maybe, maybe okay. one, maybe two. I just think that because of all of the um, the A words of the world, we'll never run out of true crime. The A words. A words. <laughs> Asshole. Assholes. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, so you haven't. No, I you have not. Know. And I'm excited. Okay. It's pretty distinct. It's a girl. I'll yeah, interrupt you. Little. I'll interrupt you and stop you if I've heard it. And then I'll leave the room. And then we'll just stop. Yes. Right here. Because if I've heard it, that's really all that and matters. I'll just sit here and read it out loud by myself. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So gave you the trigger warning. So yes. everyone's. Buckle up. Yeah. Buckle up. Um, I read a ton of articles on this, obviously, which is all going to be on the website per use. But mm -hmm. um, we, I also watched a documentary on YouTube and that's where I got most of this information got it and I was it's all takes place in England and I do a few quotes and like I wish I knew how to do an English you accent you have to do, do it in the British accent no no accent. I can't 
I'm doing mine now. Yeah. British. <laughs> no, I can't do it. I would probably sound more like Moira Rose. Like, That's a good I, thing. But it's not British. It's just weird. Oh, uh, pausing. <laughs> well, anyways. Um, so, Mary Flora Bell was born on March. Sorry. That's not right. <laughs> I wanted to say Bebe really quick. Okay, Bebe. <laughs> Ever since he said Moira Rose, I have to get out of my system. Bebe. The Bebe. Anyways, uh, go on. Sorry. Mary was born May 26, 1957. So, she's a Gemini. Yes. I literally thought, oh, okay, so she's a Taurus because I... The cutoff is the 20th, I believe. I don't know, but the 19th. I I just somehow, for being so into the Zodiac signs and all that stuff, I always think that I know everyone's, like the window of each one. Yeah. I do not. I do not. So I literally need to, unless someone has like the same birthday as me or you, Yeah. I have to research like... I think that's normal. Well, by... What, knowing this girl's personality, is she a Taurus like me or is she a Gemini? Oh, she a Gemini. She is she a Gemini. All yeah. right. I don't cool. think you're going to see anything. I won't relate to her anyway. No, I don't think so. So she was born in England in this place called Newcastle upon Tyne. It sounds magical. Super fancy. Yeah. Well, it, no, it wasn't. Oh. Um, it just sounds fancy because yes. the Brits are fancier. But then she grew up specifically in this area called Scotswood, which is. In the west end of Newcastle, and I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know. I'm not familiar with any of it. Oh, no, I'm not either, but, like, I hear a lot of, like, when you're watching stuff that's based in England, there's lots of, like, west end situations, and I don't know what that is, but someone listening might know, so. And the area that she grew up in was kind of seedy. Like, it hadn't really changed since the war. This is in the 60s, so it hadn't really changed since the war in the... 40s obviously and the area specifically Scottswood at the time at least was pretty sketchy so it was a place where the police were constantly present lots of public drunkenness lots of fights at pubs lots of domestic violence and petty theft and stuff like that um it was like a a situation where like the police were like on a first name basis with like a lot of the residents kind of thing and prostitution was a very big thing Mm -hmm. in the area like there was this cop in the um, documentary that said the particular road that Mary grew up on, White House Road, was like especially rough. Like yeah. every other house, there was a sex worker. Oversaturated market. Basically, yeah. Um, it was almost like bordered on poverty. Like it, it was not really now. sad. Yeah. yeah. Desperate. But this was also the 1960s, so... Letting your kids run out in the street for hours on end, like unsupervised. Kids of all ages. Latchkey kids. Yeah, not even. Not even like, that, just they would unsupervised. Be completely unsupervised, yeah. Um, that was normal. And then like leaving your doors unlocked was normal, like that kind of thing. Like, so you know what I mean? Like you get the gist of- Yes, I get it. You let your kids play in the street all day. Mm-hmm. You don't question where they are and you go to bed with your door open. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Okay. Mary's mom, Betty, was also a sex worker, and she saw her clients in her home. Mm, That does not seem like a healthy environment. No, and as if that's not bad enough, she was said to specialize in sadomasochism. So that's loud. Yeah. Okay. And it's not just... It's not a sex subtle. worker having sex with someone. It's a, it's a little scary. It's very scary. Betty was actually 17 when she gave birth to Mary, and supposedly when they handed her the baby, 
she like recoiled and said, no, take it away. So I wonder if she recognized, did she get pregnant with a client? Um, I don't know. Okay. So I wonder if it was like a particularly bad client and it looked like him or something. Yeah, I don't know. I clearly, she just didn't want to have a baby. And you said she was 17. She was 17 when she had Mary. Scary. Yeah. So, um, and then all throughout her childhood, Mary had a few very serious near death experiences, all of which her mom, Betty wrote off as kids being kids accidents. Yeah. Yeah. Like horrible near miss accidents. Um, like one time Mary swallowed an entire bottle of sleeping pills, mm-hmm. somehow survived it. Mm-hmm. And Betty told everyone that Mary had done it while she was unsupervised and clearly didn't know what it was. But then as an adult, Mary grew up and said that her mom actually forced her to swallow all of the pills. That's what I was guessing. On another occasion, Mary fell to the cement sidewalk from a second story window Again, her mom told everybody it was an accident. She was playing by the window and she fell out. And then as an adult, Mary said, actually, my mom pushed me out yeah. the window. And then another time, she Mary almost drowned in the bath. And her mom said that she just didn't know how to swim in the bath. <laughs> and then she again, yeah, Mary said as an adult, her mom actually held her under the water. So a pretty terrible mother is what you're saying. We're only getting started. Right. You have no idea how much worse it gets and when I get into like the more specifics I'll give like another warning because it is it's it's really hard yeah and then Mary's father Billy Bell he was described as a petty criminal and an alcoholic who was in and out of prison so often that he wasn't really like in her life Mm -hmm. and um he actually wasn't her biological father but he raised her as his own and obviously gave her his last name both the parents were known to be very neglectful. I mean, like, I know I described the near-death experience kind of thing, but... Yes, murderous parent. Yeah, but neglectful in a way that, like, they would leave her alone for days on end. And Betty in particular, she was known to go to Scotland and leave Mary completely alone for, like, up to a month. And she she, seems self-centered. Mary is 10. I don't know if I said this. Mary's 10 years old when the story starts... So all this stuff that I'm describing has happened in the first 10 years of her life. Yes. Like, I mean, it's just, she's a baby Mm -hmm. still. According to Mary, like the abuse really started when she was four. So basically from like four, or maybe that's just when she starts to remember it. I don't know. But at least from four to four to 10 is when this was happening. And I read uh, like conflicting things about whether or not Billy was also abusive or if he was just neglectful like in an irresponsible way but Betty was just straight up abusive yeah and with Billy being mostly out of the picture because he's always in prison that left Mary alone with no one to intervene when Betty started to sell her to her clients saw this coming from a mile away did you I didn't Mm -hmm. You just assumed? Yeah, I just assumed. Oh, okay. So this is another warning. This is a very delicate part. Mm -hmm. The clients would sometimes sexually assault her. Sometimes they would just beat her. Sometimes they would request that Betty beat her in front of them. And then I think sometimes Betty and the clients would assault her together. I have never heard anything worse than that in my life. 
that is awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mary was a really beautiful child. She had really piercing blue eyes and really dark hair and she had like bangs. So like it was, and she had thick, dark lashes. She was like very like, like you. snow white. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I wasn't pushing for anything there, but um, she's just really pretty. She's a cute little kid. She yeah. looks very innocent and just. All kids are. Yeah. yeah. Um, the kids at school and even the teachers noted that Mary had this, her eyes were like just very piercing mm-hmm. and she had this like ability to stare at you in this like very intense way that was almost like soul penetrating yes. kind of way. She had seen some stuff. Yeah. So she had some depth to her at so a very then, early age. Yeah. So then when you catch her staring at you like that, it was like very unsettling. Mary's classmates said that while she had moments of seeming like a typical kid, she was more of an erratic bully like she'd be really calm one minute and seem just like she's playing being normal and then violently lash out at it a makes kid sense, for no though. reason oh yeah of course yeah yeah most kids were afraid of her and she didn't seem to really have any friends the only friend she had was actually a little girl named norma bell who lived next door to her and they weren't related they just happened to have the same last name norma was older than mary she was 13 and mary was 10 which may not seem like a lot, but with kids, like even a year is a big difference mentally and emotionally. Both girls had a lot in common in terms of their home life. They both came from abusive homes where they were often left on their own. One classmate of both the girls said she remembers vividly playing with her friend at school when Mary came up and started to choke her friend. She said her friend's face was red, she couldn't breathe, her lips were changing colors, and it took like a, a bigger kid to come over and peel her fingers off of the little girl's neck. Eric Foster, a teacher at Mary's school, said that he first became of the girl and her sadistic tendencies when one of his students came to class with a mark on her cheek. And when he asked her what the mark was from, she said that Mary Bell had put out a cigarette on her cheek. So he calls to have Mary brought to his classroom and he points to the girl's cheek and says, did you do this? And she just matter of factly said, yes. I mean, that's probably been done to her. I can guarantee one of those guys did something to her. I mean, that's what kids do. They just replicate. And he said, are you sorry for doing this? And she said, yes. And then that was it. Yeah. Yeah. She owned it. Like, but but nobody did anything. Nobody, the adults at school, he was obviously an adult. And I mean, I don't want to be like, no, I do want to judge. Like that, he was an adult and no, nobody in. intervened. Nobody tried to investigate what's going on in her home life. It was just like, okay. So on May 11th, 1968. That's my birthday, you guys. Write it down. Yeah. Mary and Norma were seen playing with Mary's three-year-old cousin when a supposed accident occurred. Somehow, they got up onto a roof, and the little boy fell off and survived but suffered severe injuries. When the girls were asked about it, they claimed he fell off the roof by accident, which isn't a stretch. Like It, it is kind of believable that a three-year-old would wander off. off the roof. Yeah. They're not the most logical. But still, it's, you know. The next day on May 12th, a local woman filed a report with the police that Mary had attempted to strangle her young daughter, Pauline. 
The police questioned Mary and Norma, but nothing further came of it. And that might be because at the time, little Pauline was too afraid to tell the whole story. What she's recounted as an adult goes like this. Pauline said she was playing in a sand pit when Norma pinned her down and then Mary grabbed Pauline by the neck and squeezed as hard as she could. But Pauline opened her mouth to try to gasp for air. So Mary continued to try to strangle her with one hand and then with the other, she grabbed fistfuls of sand and oh. shoved it into her mouth. Yeah. But when she did that, Norma jumped up and she let go of Pauline. And Pauline said that she, it seemed like Norma was surprised that Mary was doing that. And so then that's how uh, Pauline was able to get up and she ran home. She got away. But as soon as Pauline gets up and leaves, Mary turns to two other little girls in the sand pit and does exactly the same thing. She makes Norma pin them down. She tries to choke them and shove sand in their mouths, but they both managed to get away because there was two of them. Then the same day, Mary attempted to strangle Norma's older sister. How much older was she than them? Does it say? No, I didn't bother reading that. Okay. I mean, Norma was 13, so. She older. Yeah, whatever. Norma's father walked in and had to pry her fingers off of her neck. So. This girl had a rage inside of her. Yeah. And she was doing this all within a 24 hour period. That's yeah. one, one, two, three. Oh no. With the little, that's like four kids. I think four kids one day. Yeah. Then on Saturday, May 25th, the day before Mary's 11th birthday, Four-year-old Martin Brown was playing outside with his friends. His mom, June, said he was a very tall little boy for his age, and he was very cheeky, very mischievous. Mm. And even though he's four, it still was totally normal to leave him be. Just let him go play. So she wasn't concerned when he had been gone for a while. But then someone ran to her house to tell her there had been an accident with Martin. So she ran to him and found a huge crowd of kids outside a derelict house, and a man was walking out holding Martin in his arms. She said she ran to him, and it was like she couldn't comprehend what happened. Martin was gray and cold to the touch, so June took her sweater off and wrapped it around him to try to warm him up. She said the man was just crying, like just sobbing, and she said, is he all right? And he said, I don't know. And then... All of a sudden, paramedics were there, and they grabbed him and took him away in an ambulance. And they take him to the nearest hospital, and he's pronounced dead on arrival. His mom said it just felt so surreal. Like, it didn't seem like he had died. He did. She couldn't, she's in shock. He didn't even look dead to her when she saw him. Like, he was didn't have any cuts or marks. He had, like, a little, like, trickle of blood out of his mouth, but that was it. Yeah. There wasn't anything there. Police investigated the empty home and questioned witnesses, and a lot of theories kind of floated around about how he could have died accidentally. Tablets were found in the home, just something that the former owners had, like, left behind, and it was kind of near his body. Like so pills? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the police theory, they had a theory that, like, maybe he found them and, and swallowed a bunch them. and it killed him. But his autopsy like didn't show any signs that he had swallowed pills. And there was physically, other than like this little piece of blood on his mouth, like there was no marks. Nothing. There was no marks. There was nothing. And there weren't any witnesses. So there was just basically nothing to go off of. 
So they ruled his death as an accident caused by the dangerous conditions of the derelict home. He had been found like sprawled out, sort of spread eagle, like he was like on the cross, like his arms were spread out. Mm -hmm. And he, his little body was covered with like all this debris and junk that had been. So they're trying to hide in him. the house. So it seemed like an accident of some time, some kind could have happened. Okay. That makes sense. To me, it would almost point the opposite. If he's covered by things, I would yeah. think that someone was trying to hide that body. Yeah. I am no investigator, yeah. so I would not know. <laughs> no. This area that he had died in is a place called Rat Alley. It was in the process of being demolished as a way to like kind of eradicate the slums. So it was common for the neighborhood kids to play in these empty homes. But the local government was demolishing these buildings at a snail's pace and not adequately removing debris. So after Martin's death, a march was held to protest the dangers that this inflicted on the community. And one of the little kids at the front of the march carrying a side of the banner was Mary Bell. Yeah, of course she was. Of course she was there. And this little boy's name was Martin Brown. He was someone's baby. He was loved. He was a person. But because he was found in this area called Rat Alley, the press started referring to him as Rat Alley Boy. It's disgusting. And his mom, June, said that hurt her so deeply to lose her baby and then have this community that she lives in start associating him with the word rat. It just added pain to an already unbearable pain. Look at this picture of him. Oh my God, that sweet little boy, his curls. His like little curly hair and his cheeks are so, his like cheeks are so chubby that they hang down past his chin. Like little jowls. Yes, I but love it's cute, it. It's my it's a baby. favorite. Just a little baby, so cute. So two days after his death on Monday, May 27th, police responded to a report of a break-in at a nursery school in Scottswood. Someone had broken in and trashed the place. And amongst the mess, they found a few notes with misspelled scribbles on them. A few of them read, I murder so that I may come back. And fuck off, we murder, watch out. And on another, we did murder Martin Brown. And police just dismissed it as a prank because it had already become public knowledge that his death was ruled an accident. Yeah. And it was clearly written by a child. Mm -hmm. So they just wrote it off. They just wrote it off. Martin's mother, June, said that her sister often babysat neighborhood kids, Mary and Norma included. So after Martin died, she said that the times that she visited her sister's house, she was touched that little Mary and Norma would often ask her, how are you doing? Do you, psychopath. Do you miss him? Like that kind of thing. And she just thought they were like these sweet little girls. And she was like, how sweet is it that they're concerned about how I'm feeling? They're just manipulative. Mm -hmm. Then on the day of Martin's funeral, June heard a knock at her door. She opens it to find little Mary and little Norma. And they asked if they could see Martin. And June was surprised because she already knew that the girls were well aware that he had died. So she thought they were like asking to see if he could come out and play or something. So she said, Mary, you can't see Martin. Martin is dead. And Mary responded, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. That's not normal. That's not normal. Mm -mm. And June was so taken aback, she just slammed the door in their face and collapsed, and she was so inconsolable. Her husband had to call for a doctor. 
Two months later, on Wednesday, July 31st, 1968, a three-year-old boy named Brian Howe was amongst the crowd of unsupervised kids gathering to watch more buildings get demolished in Rat Alley. When Brian didn't come home for dinner, his parents went straight to the police and reported him missing. And a massive search was underway, like, almost immediately. Then, sadly, around 11 p.m., someone found his body in a field. He was laid out in the same manner that Martin had been, as though he was on a cross. And like Martin, he also had blonde curly hair, and police found chunks of it next to his body. So someone had snipped off a bunch of his hair with scissors. He was partially nude and had many lacerations up and down his legs, likely from the same scissors that had been used to cut his hair. Prior to his autopsy, the police suspected that someone very young had killed Brian. Which is weird. Was it just because it was so clumsy? No. Oh, okay. They described his cuts as being gentle and almost playful, as if the person doing it wasn't maliciously stabbing him, but more like experimenting. Yeah. Yeah, like it was more like experimenting kind of thing. And then during his autopsy, it was discovered his penis had been severely mutilated. And that someone had carved the initial N into his stomach and then changed it into an M. So N for Norma, M for Mary. You're good. Yeah. Paying attention. His cause of death was strangulation, and they believed all of the cuts and mutilation happened postmortem. At least there's that. Yeah. And remember that Martin Brown's death had been officially ruled an accident, but police did have suspicions that there was more to it. They just didn't have any proof. So I guess rather than leave it open, they just decided to close that and call it an accident. However, after Brian's body was found, police found the similarities like between the two boys and the two scenes to be similar enough that they decided to reopen Martin's case. And police made a shocking announcement to the public that not only did they believe both boys had been murdered, but that they suspected the murderer was a child. This was obviously upsetting to everyone because, like, who would have expected that? Now everyone has to look at their kids and wonder if they've been sending them out to play with a murderer. A monster. Or worse, is my kid a murderer? Yeah. And then police started to notice that every press conference they held, without fail... The same little blue-eyed, dark-haired girl would show up and listen intently at the very front of the crowd. So all of the parents are like freaked out, but it was more upsetting to find out that most of the neighborhood kids already knew who did it. They were just keeping it a secret out of fear, probably. All the kids knew that Mary was a violent little bully, and they were all very scared of her. But they also knew that Mary had started to brag to other kids that she and Norma had recently strangled a little boy and got away with it. What Mary and Norma did not know is that a nine-year-old boy witnessed them killing Brian Howe. He told police that he saw Mary and Norma approach Brian in the crowd of kids that were watching the demolition, and then he saw the three of them walk towards an empty field. Not long after this, The little boy also leaves the crowd and makes his way towards the general area that he saw the kids go. Mary, Norma, and little Brian were alone in the field, and he saw Mary strangle Brian. Then he saw her pull something sharp out of her pocket and do something to Brian's body with it. 
So he witnessed the whole murder. When police went to question Mary, her father initially refused to let them in and then threatened them with his vicious dog. But obviously she was a very serious suspect, so eventually he had to let them in. When they explained that they needed to take Mary in for questioning, Mary supposedly turned to her father and said, send for my solicitor. Okay. Which is lawyer in England. That's what they call them. So the detective said that interviewing Mary was bizarre. She was very sophisticated in how she handled the interview. Like they'd ask a question and she would answer before they finished asking, but then she would go on to answer the next four or five questions that they had intended to ask, but she's sharp yet. Yes. Both Mary and Norma's stories kept changing. And even though she admitted to the police, quote, I like to hurt people in little things that can't fight back. She consistently said that she was innocent of this murder. Because these murder suspects were so little, the police enlisted the guidance of a child psychiatrist named Dr. Monica Robathen to help determine the best way to interrogate the kids. She said getting Mary to relax was very difficult because she was a really tough little girl who knew she was a serious suspect in Mm -hmm. this. So Dr. Robathen said the only time that she could get Mary to open up was when they weren't talking about the murdered boys. And Mary would especially light up when she was talking about her friendship with Norma. She told the psychiatrist, Norma and I had such a laugh that day. And the psychiatrist believed that Mary was referring to one of the days that the boys were murdered and that she just, it was sort of like a slip up. She didn't mean to say it. Mm -hmm. She did admit to writing the notes at that nursery school and said they wrote them, quote, for a giggle. (laughs) And Norma ended up being the one who cracked and told the police the truth. I figured that. They even took her to the location that Brian's body was found to see if she could prove anything. And she showed them the exact location his body had been in and the position he had been found in Mm -hmm. and then took it one step further and showed them where they had hidden the scissors. And then I guess, I don't know how, but they were able to verify it was the scissors that were used on him. Norma claimed to not have been present for Martin's murder, but she told police that Mary admitted to killing him and said, quote, I squeezed his neck and pushed up his lungs. That's how you kill them. Keep your nose dry and don't tell anybody. Mary's method to getting the boys to allow her to get close to them was so unsettling and calculated too. Norma told police that Mary would tell them that their necks were sore, so she was going to massage them. So she would gently put her her hands around their little necks, start to massage, and then slowly squeeze as tight as she could until they died. I would literally have fallen for that because there's nothing I like more than a neck massage. Oh my God. A stranger in Trader Joe's anything. Oh, wow. You have a sore neck. I probably do. Oh my God. Get after it. Oh no. I'm kidding. I don't trust anybody, but neck massages are my kryptonite. <laughs> so on August 8th, 1968, police arrested and charged Mary and Norma with the murder of Brian Howe. And you remember that teacher, Eric Foster, who yes. had confronted her about the little cigarette situation after her arrest he decided to go through all of her schoolwork to see if she had said anything about either of the boys and he was astonished to see that she absolutely did in mm-hmm. pretty extensively 
The cover of one of her school books, written in her handwriting, said, Boy found dead in old house. The police noted that the biggest factor in connecting Mary to Martin Brown's death was from the drawing that she made in her school book two days after his death. And this is Eric found it. That's how it's like it she's was keeping given to souvenirs. The place. Yes. She drew a picture of a little kid laid out in the same position that Martin had been found in. And next to him, she wrote the word tablets. The drawing also had a picture of a man walking towards the boy. And the police believed it was supposed to be the man who had found him in June saw him coming out with his body. Um, the police said their discovery of the tablets near his body and their initial theory that maybe he had taken a bunch of pills and died that way was never made public. So she, so she just basically gave them key evidence. Ex- yeah. yeah, exactly. So the fact that she drew it like that and, and noted it in her little note just showed that she was probably there. And then next to the little drawing, she wrote a note about how Martin's body had been discovered and that she saw his body being removed from the scene. So clearly she was there. Yes. So the trial began on December 5th and lasted nine days. And oddly, all the major news outlets in England didn't cover it because it was a child. It wasn't, so it wasn't heavily covered. I feel like that's not normal. Like here it would be everywhere. Yeah. People in the courtroom described Mary as being unaffected by the whole scene. All of the adults who had regular contact with Mary and Norma during the trial said it was very clear that neither of them could comprehend the severity of this crime. But I would argue that they probably just didn't understand, like they didn't even understand why they had been taken from their homes, what a courtroom was, like that kind of thing. I just don't think they knew that stuff. Her lawyer said that, like most little kids, her focus wasn't on the future. She wondered all the time how her dog was doing and whether or not her mother would come to see her. So still a child. Yeah. Like when the jurors entered the courtroom, Mary asked her lawyer, who were they? And he said, the jurors. And she said, what's that? He said, the people who were going to decide what happens to you. And she did not understand that. She didn't know what that meant. So even though she acts like she's a 50-year-old crazy person, yeah, she's still a child. She's still a child who doesn't understand any of this. And mm-hmm. both the girls, they had, they really just had no understanding of anything. All throughout the trial, Mary flip-flopped between denying the accusations and then blaming Norma for the murders. One of the jurors later said that watching Mary in the courtroom was very weird. Like, she looked so young and innocent, and it was hard to fathom she would have been involved in any type of crime, much less something this serious. She was stoic on the stand and answered questions in a very straightforward and almost witty manner. But there was one point where she was being cross-examined that she got really upset. She was asked if she had ever killed a pigeon by strangulation, and she got so upset that the courtroom had to take a break so that she could calm down. Crying or, like, angry or... Like, what did that trigger in her? Just both? She just became really upset and she was crying and she couldn't answer the question. So they had to recess. Yeah. The jurors caught on very quickly to the differences in, in the two girls, though. Mary was said to be very bright and sharp. She was very articulate and capable of responding to questions from everyone in very quick witted ways. Norma, on the other hand, was very shy and insecure. And every adult involved in the case has repeatedly stated that she wasn't very bright. Some were so blunt as to say she was dumb. So it was just really clear that Mary was the leader and Norma was the follower. And during the trial, 
Mary didn't sleep most nights. Like she would get up every couple hours to go to the bathroom because she was worried she was going to wet the bed and get in trouble. Oh my God. It's like hard to feel bad for this person, but she ended up in this position in the first place because of trauma. I know. The verdict was highly dependent on the psychiatrists who were called to assess both of the girls. And they concluded that Mary did not possess the same emotions that other children her age possessed. And that Norma did just basically whatever Mary told her to do. They said Mary didn't seem to feel remorse or anxiety, and they went so far as to say that she displayed the classic signs of a psychopath. And antisocial personality disorder, for sure. So because of this assessment from the psychiatrist, the jury concluded that the smart one, Mary, Mm -hmm. was very capable of murder, while the dumb one, Norma, wouldn't have done it. 13-year-old Norma Bell was acquitted on the grounds that she was simple-minded and had been dominated by Mary. 11-year-old Mary Bell was convicted of manslaughter. Mary said that when she was convicted, she didn't know what it meant. But because she could see the adults she knew were crying, she knew it was bad. When it was time to leave the courtroom, they put a blanket over her head and walked her outside to get into a car. And she thought she was going to the gallows. Well, yeah, if your head's being covered, I would have assumed the same thing. It was just to protect her from photos. Okay. a baby. She's a so child. It's like, I'm going to be killed. Yes. Mary was sentenced to something called detained to her majesty's pleasure, which I didn't understand. So I looked that up because at first I was like, Queen Elizabeth know, sent her to jail? The queen? Yeah, I was so confused. But that's not what that meant. So um, I'll explain it to you. A judge who sentences a defendant to be detained at her majesty's pleasure is typically applied to very young offenders for serious crimes they, they've committed and are likely to commit again in the future. So it basically means the person gets an indefinite amount of time in prison until it's determined that the person is safe to be released, which is sometimes never. But it's just more appropriate to do that type of sentencing versus life sentence versus or yeah, death. Yeah. She's, only a, a, she's only a baby. According to Wikipedia, prisoners held at Her Majesty's pleasure are frequently reviewed to determine whether their sentence can be deemed complete. That power used to only rest with a monarch, but now it's like delegated to other government officials to review that. Martin's mother felt that this was justice. She said she hated those two little girls, and had she been given the opportunity to get her hands on them, she would have found herself in court the next week. Very understandable. Yeah. After her trial, Mary said, quote, Brian Howe had no mother, so he won't be missed. If I was a judge and I had an 11-year-old who'd done this, I'd give her 18 months. Murder isn't that bad. We all die sometime anyway. It's not how it works, honey. I don't think this girl's going to get better in the future. Well, story's not done yet. Betty Bell, Mary's mother, Mm -hmm. sold her story to whoever would listen as often as possible. And she would even sell letters that were supposedly from Mary. One of the letters read in part, Please, Mom, put my tiny mind at ease. Tell judge and jury on your knees. They will listen to your cries of please. The guilty one is you, not me. I'm sorry it has to be this way. We'll both cry and you will go away. Tell them you were guilty, please. So then, Mom, I'll be free. Obviously, her mom did not kill those little boys, but I found it 
sad and interesting that she could comprehend that, that her mom is the reason she was so messed up also and doing her, horrible things. Her rhyming ability. <laughs> wow. Yes, so impressive, isn't Poetic. it? Poetic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, smart enough to be able to connect so that she wouldn't be this way if her mother hadn't done what she had done. Right. Then uh, Betty did a television interview in 1972. The interviewer asked her, are you saying that your daughter's innocent? And she responded, no, not so much as innocent. And he asked, but something must have made her do these things. Mm -hmm. And she said, yes, something must have made her do these things. Maybe the arguments between me and my husband had some effect on her. I don't know. Like, bitch, are you for real? Uh, <laughs> like, sh- Take Mary- a little responsibility. Mary grew up in a home with one bedroom. Mm-hmm. Her mom, a sex worker who specializes in sadomasochism, saw all of her clients there. Try to kill her a few times. Yeah. It's guaranteed that she was witnessing violence between adults on a daily basis, and she was certainly on the receiving end of violence, whether it be by her parents or her mom's clients or both. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't so have turned the, out that way if she hadn't, hadn't had that upbringing. No. There's no way. So the fact that it's just like sometimes maybe the arguments I've had with my husband, like it's just illogical. Mary spent 12 years incarcerated and the first six were spent at a sort of like juvie of sorts. And at this facility, Mary was the only girl among 22 boys. And I read that there were rumors that she had experienced sexual assault yeah. there, but I couldn't find confirmation of it but i kind of feel like it's safe to assume of course the psychologist and psychiatrist who treated mary during her adolescence stated that she never seemed remorseful of the murders in fact she seemed like very dismissive of the topic as if it was just like wasn't a relevant thing to her in 1977 she was transferred to an adult women's prison and she briefly escaped but was found and taken back into custody like almost immediately in 1980 after serving 12 years a judge deemed 23-year-old Mary officially rehabilitated and no longer a threat to society, and she was released. By law, she was offered anonymity and a new identity, which she accepted. Four years later, on Mary's birthday, a day after the anniversary of Martin Brown's death, she gave birth to a daughter. Ay. Yeah. It wasn't until her daughter was a teenager that she learned of her mom's crimes. She found out when reporters figured out Mary's new identity and they were forced to get new ones and move. Mm -hmm. And apparently this happened like quite a few times, like they would find her and they'd have to move and get new identities. After Mary's mother, Betty died and her daughter had finally learned of her past, Mary decided to write a book on her life story. It was obviously highly criticized by the media and the government and the general public because Mary stood to profit off of it. According to Wikipedia, Tony Blair's government attempted to find a legal means to prevent its publication on the grounds that a criminal should not profit from his or her crimes, but the attempt was unsuccessful. So Mary was paid 50,000 pounds, which is about 68,000 US dollars. Yes, back then. For talking about her crimes. Yeah. Sharon Richardson, the sister of Mary's first victim, Martin Brown, said in an interview that she didn't necessarily think about Mary very much prior to the book release. She said they didn't go looking for her when she was released from prison and they weren't forcing Mary into the public eye. She said Mary chose to bring herself back into the public eye by writing the book and she forced the victim's families to talk about it as a result. And on the topic of Mary profiting off the book, Sharon said, quote, 
When she received that money, she received it under an assumed name, not Mary Bell. And I think she gave up her right to anonymity the day she received her money. Anonymity is supposed to work for the rehabilitation of offenders and to give them a new start in life. She didn't take that chance for a new start in life because she decided to write that book and profit off that book. Absolutely. And I, um, I don't know if I mentioned this already. I didn't read the book, but you I did. You know, you didn't mention that. No, I, I did not read that. I was not willing to do that, obviously. So I just relied heavily on reviews of the book to get like quotes and specific yeah. things that were said in the book. But I did not read it because I don't think that was acceptable. No. But Mary said in her book that her and Norma's home lives were so full of pain and violence that they really bonded over the fantasy of escaping at one day. They created alter egos and used to egg each other on about who could be the naughtiest of the two and who could Mm -hmm. do the naughtiest things. And at the time, she remembered thinking, I didn't mean to kill him forever. So it was like a temporary power thing, probably. Yeah, just severely abused kids doing things that they didn't understand would be repercussions. She said, quote, children are what you make them. In 2009, it was reported that Mary had become a grandmother and she successfully got lifetime anonymity for her, her daughter, and her grandchild. Martin's mother, June, said that she hopes that every time Mary looks at her grandchild, she remembers she robbed June of ever seeing grandchildren from Martin. And that is the story of Mary Bell. Don't mess up your kids. No. Don't have them if you're going to be like that. Well, I don't think her mom chose to have one. No, obviously. I mean, yeah, of course, but... But you it can was, choose to give a child away yeah, versus try to murder them. And I have like a, a really hard time like taking a stance on that because it's like on the whole story because I think like in most of these stories, we know that this, the criminal, the murder, the bad guy or whatever was once victimized also, mm-hmm. but then did disgusting, did things. horrible things. So it's like you can't feel compassion for someone like that, but at the same time, you can feel compassion for. You can have empathy for the situation. What, or what? Well, whatever it was that happened to them to make them do something horrible. So it was like every time I read about you know a story that we're covering and what the person went through as a child, I can't help but feel really sad for that a child version of them yeah for yeah for that version of them I feel bad for all the innocent people in this including the things that she as an innocent child went through so I don't know it's just hard to also for it to be a child murder I feel like in that situation the whole time I kept feeling sad for this girl Mm -hmm. because we're used to covering them as you know men or women in their 30s and 40s so there's like a detachment to that or there's enough time yeah but we also know today at the time all the all the things that people knew of her like that teacher her friends and family who knew about these like accidents things like that did not bother investigating no one stepped in or or was an advocate like that woman that little pauline girl's mom she went to the police to say mary tried to strangle my daughter and they didn't do anything it wasn't like that didn't warrant them the police to look into her home life and that kind of but i think I, at least I hope like today when a kid is doing stuff like that, it's just people know to look into yes. their home life and what's going on. This child's obviously being abused. That's why they're turning around and abusing others. 
And that's what I was just about to say is like the time period where, you know, now we know that kids can commit these acts, but I think maybe decades ago, there wasn't as much known even about serial killers or any killers, psychopaths, anything like that. That's true. So there's been a lot of progress with that. So, so just because they're a child doesn't mean they're innocent. Yeah. It's really sad. Well, that was really, really good. Very disturbing. Very interesting. I drank all of my beverage. I I tried to drink it as I was going, but I was just couldn't stop talking. You were consumed with the story. Mm-hmm. I would clink you, but isn't that bad luck? Empty glass, full glass. There is a drop There's confirmed. A drop. Luck yeah, is okay. luck is fine. All right. Well, I'll see you next week, Ash. Yeah. Well, we live together, so I'll see you. I will see you in every a few day. Minutes, yes. Yeah. But okay. love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katerina. We'll see you next week.